fewer than three years since winning an 80-seat majority and seemingly smashing Labour's red wall for good, Boris Johnson has resigned with his government in tatters. Since Tuesday night, 59 members of government have resigned, including Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak and Michelle Donnellan, who had only been Education Secretary for a single day. Yesterday, Michael Gove issued Boris Johnson a nine o'clock deadline to leave his office with a shred of dignity intact. He was then fired at 8.59pm. By 9.30 this morning, the writing was on the wall, the lectern was out, and by 12.30, the Prime Minister was announcing his intention to step down and make way for a new Tory Prime Minister. With me to discuss all of the day's drama and what comes next is the incomparable, the infectious, Michael Walker. Oh, infectious is quite the word to use in this moment. Ash, thank you so much for having me on tonight because I have had the worst timed bout of COVID-19 I could have had. I, I tested positive on Tuesday and that's when the whole government started collapsing. Um, but I'm, I'm so delighted to be joined or to, to be joining you, sorry, this evening. <laughs> I mean, I actually saw Nadine Dorries posting contaminated swabs through your letterbox. So make of that what you will. Sky News branded Boris Johnson's resignation speech as dignified but tinged with sadness. That might not have been the same resignation as the rest of us watched this lunchtime. The Prime Minister struck a rather more whingy tone as he reluctantly announced that he'd be stepping down. The reason I have fought so hard in the last few days to continue to deliver that mandate in person was not just because I wanted to do so, but because I felt it was my job, my duty, my obligation to you to continue to do what we promised in 2019. And in the last few days, I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when we're actually only a handful of points behind in the polls, even in midterm after quite a few months of pretty relentless sledging and when the economic scene is so difficult domestically and internationally. And I regret uh, not to have been successful in those arguments. And of course, it's painful not to be able to see through so many ideas and and projects myself. But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. So we've both got self-pity and self-aggrandizement from the Prime Minister there. He clearly doesn't think he's done anything wrong. He's still thinks he's got a personal mandate from the public and he doesn't seem to see why he should step down. Michael, it was a pretty short speech, but you'd think even then he'd have found some room to say sorry. Why no apology? Well, well he did express regret, Ash. Quite important to, to recognise. He did express regret that he wasn't successful in persuading cabinet members not to try and overthrow him. Like it was a really... I mean, you could call it defiant, but that I think is a little bit too kind for him. It's a real sort of throwing the toys out of the pram speech. Look, I got a massive majority. I really don't think I should be leaving Downing Street right now, but you forced me to do this, you animals, herd-like creatures who are kicking me out when you, you'll come to regret this day, but I, I will be. Well, you won't have to drag me out kicking and screaming. You'll just have to watch me leave being quite <laughs> miserable about it. I thought it was very in keeping with with Boris Johnson. And the reason I say this, you know, I have been sort of looking at Twitter, everyone saying, oh, Boris Johnson should have resigned as soon as his MPs lost um, confidence in him. This is really going against the unwritten constitution, et cetera, et cetera. And my thought there is, is 
you know, Jeremy Corbyn won in 2019, this would have happened within a month. You know, you would have had all those Labour MPs saying, this guy's got to go. You had the Conservative MPs saying he's a danger to Britain. He would have probably, you know, had to do a speech and said, look, I've got a mandate from the country. I want to continue governing whatever these MPs are saying. Now, from that perspective, I think Boris Johnson's absolutely in the right. The problem is, he doesn't have any decent argument as to why he should stay in post. If it was Jeremy Corbyn, he wouldn't just be saying, oh, I, I wanted to stay in this job because I really wanted to be world king. He'd be saying, I still haven't ended homelessness. I still haven't made sure that we can't start expeditionary wars which kill hundreds of thousands of people. He had a purpose. Boris Johnson is literally just, I won a big election. I want to continue doing what I'm doing. And it's really, really annoying um, that I have to quit because I don't want to. It did sound like you couldn't think of a better reason for not stepping down than, look, we actually haven't wallpapered the spare bedroom yet. It seemed entirely self-serving. And you're right, Michael, uh, there didn't seem to be a case for the country for why he should stay. I mean, do you think that there is something inherently undemocratic, even if it's an unpopular prime minister being removed in this way? Do you think there's something wrong with it? It's difficult to say. I mean, as I say, if this was Jeremy Corbyn, i probably would. I mean, I think the parties need to be more democratic so that the MPs, you know, are generally representative of the people. It's not just sort of this, you know, the mood of the lobby has changed and the mood of the conservative MPs has changed. So therefore the guy goes. It doesn't seem like a perfect situation to me. But what's important to know is that if this had been Jeremy Corbyn, I don't think the media would have struggled to make him unpopular. You know, they managed to do that anyway. I'm sure there would be, you know, a lot of people happy to see the back of him. But there would also be a serious body of people, you know, out on Whitehall protesting, saying, we want this guy to stay in post. It would be a mass movement to keep this guy in office. When it comes to Boris Johnson, because he's never stood for anything other than himself, you could argue it could be problematic the way he's been brought down. But there isn't really any counterforce on the other side. There, there isn't anyone sort of saying, we really need this guy to stay in post because he's only ever believed in himself. He doesn't have a movement behind him. He doesn't really have anything behind him. Johnson is not out of office. Now that he has resigned, the big question is, what happens next? In his speech, as we've just discussed, Johnson said that he intends to stay on as Prime Minister until a new leader of the Conservative Party is elected, and that the timetable for the leadership election would be announced next week. Although, that's really up to the 1922 committee. Some people want him gone immediately. Former Prime Minister John Major has written to Sir Graham Brady, head of the 1922 committee, saying the proposal for the prime minister to remain in office for up to three months, having lost the support of his cabinet, his government and his parliamentary party is unwise and maybe unsustainable. In such a circumstance, the prime minister maintains the power of patronage and of even greater concern, the power to make decisions which will affect the lives of those within all four nations of the United Kingdom and further afield. Some will argue that his new cabinet will restrain him and merely note that his previous cabinet did not or could not do so. The overall well-being of the country, Mr Johnson should not remain in Downing Street when he is unable to command the confidence of the House of Commons for any longer than necessary to affect the smooth transition of government. And Dominic Cummings made this interesting prediction of how things will go. He tweeted, Tory MPs usually do the most stupid thing. What's that now? A. Break trolley. So Trolley is his nickname for the Prime Minister. B, leave him in number 10 causing chaos. C, vote confidence in him in Commons because they can't organise getting Robin. D, look like clowns to planet Earth. Some Tories are already looking like they're intending to prove Cummings right. This is the former chair of the 1922 committee, Mark Pritchard. 
I like John Major, respect him hugely. I think he gets most uh, things right. I think on this one, he's got it wrong, respectfully. Uh, look, there's a precedent. Uh, David Cameron, uh, in the transition, carried on as Prime Minister, albeit just for a few weeks. Theresa May for six, seven weeks, I believe. I think it's right that the Prime Minister should carry on. He set out a timetable. He said he's going to go. I think people, in a way, should leave him alone and allow him to get on and govern the country the, for the next few months. There's no constitutional mechanism for him going. Of course, we have a Deputy Prime Minister and the excellent uh, Dominic Raab. However, there is, you know, it's not up to the 1922 with respect to my colleagues or indeed to uh, the uh, Deputy Prime Minister we, or even, uh, you know, the Cabinet Office. There is no constitutional mechanism for the Prime Minister being removed. He said he's going. Let's give him space to, under his new Cabinet, to govern the country for the next few weeks, but move swiftly to his replacement. So Mark Pritchard thinks there's a clear constitutional case to keep Boris on as caretaker leader. But is there potentially a more selfish reason that Johnson wants to stay in office a while longer? The Mirror's Pippa Crera broke this story just a few hours after the Prime Minister's speech. Later this month, Boris Johnson wants to stay on as caretaker Tory leader in part to throw a big wedding party at Chequers. I mean, look, Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister who got a Tory donor to pay for his tacky Lulu little wallpaper and couldn't stop partying during lockdown. So it kind of makes sense that he wants at least one last shubs in a ground location that he doesn't have to pay the venue higher fee for. This afternoon, Johnson held his first cabinet meeting. Half of his ministers had been calling for him to go only hours before, so I imagine it was slightly awkward. The I newspaper's political reporter tweeted, Johnson told cabinet shortly after he announced his resignation, he would not seek to implement new policies or make major changes of direction. Rather, it would focus on delivering the agenda on which the government was elected. Major fiscal decisions should be left for the next prime minister. This is obviously bad news for people worried about the cost of living crisis. So let's think ahead to what the new prime minister, whoever it turns out to be, where will they take the Tories next? Here's a clue. They'll make it a low-tax conservative party. In his resignation speech, Johnson said, Our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader equally committed to taking this country forward through tough times, not just helping families to get through it, but changing and improving the way we do things, cutting burdens on businesses and families, and yes, cutting taxes, because that is the way to generate the growth and the income we need to pay for great public services. So Michael, that is a pretty clear signal of where Boris Johnson thinks things are going to go. So is this just about where the balance of power in the Tory party is, or is he genuinely thinking about a policy platform which could maybe keep him in number 10, or is actually what he'd prefer to see? It's a very bizarre part of the speech. You know, when he talks about like the Darwinian process and like the Darwinian survival of the fittest in a sentence next to let's help hard up families. It doesn't sit right with me. It's pretty bizarre thing he said. It's also complete nonsense. Like people are saying this this is not a tax cutting government. It it it's not. They've been putting up various taxes, especially since the coronavirus pandemic and the outlays they made then. But we did have a tax cutting government. It was David Cameron and George Osborne from 2010 onwards. They cut corporation tax, for example. And what did we have then? We had a decade of stagnating wages. So the argument that the reason people are suffering from high levels of inflation is because taxes are too high. And, you know, the reason we have stagnating wages or falling real wages now is because taxes are too high. It's the nonsense, right? It, it, it doesn't make any sense. But I think he is. Yeah, this is a guy who wants to presumably mend some bridges 
with the conservative establishment. He knows that he's going to be leaving Downing Street. He doesn't want to be a complete pariah. He wants to be on those speaker circuits. He wants to be in with the people who are going to give him book deals. So it makes sense for him to be putting forward those messages which his party want to hear. You've also got to think he needs his cabinet to stay on side, you know, his new Z-list cabinet to stay on side until September or until August or wherever, whenever the leadership election ends, so that this doesn't become more chaotic than it already is. So to me, yeah, he, he's saying what the party faithful wants to hear, and it's clearly complete nonsense. The sad part is, or the worrying part is, that that is probably what we're going to get if you let Tory members and Tory MPs, they're the two people, or the two groups of people who matter here, choose the next prime minister, they are probably going to choose a tax-cutting prime minister who doesn't give a jot about helping families struggling with the cost of living crisis. So that's probably what's coming next. So while I love the schadenfreude of, of watching Boris Johnson collapse amid his own sort of undisciplined ego, I, I am quite concerned about what's coming next. Well, luckily, we're about to discuss who might be our next sociopath in chief. So who's currently in the running for next Tory leader? Well, Attorney General Suella Braverman was first out of the starting gates. There's also the man who hates net zero climate targets, Steve Baker. He said that he'll run. And there are four Tory MPs who've come out saying that they'll back Tom Tugendhat, who has yet to announce if he'll be running. Senior Tories understood to be running include Liz Truss, Nadeem Zahawi, Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid, as well as Jeremy Hunt, Ben Wallace and Penny Morden. Definitely not in the running is Dominic Raab, because as Deputy Prime Minister, Raab can't run if he takes over as Interim Prime Minister. Jacob Rees-Mogg isn't in the running either, and Michael Gove has ruled himself out. Though, considering uh, what happened last time in 2016, who knows how long that will last. We're already getting a sense of who the Tory party might go for, though. YouGov's latest polling of Tory party members shows that Ben Wallace is just ahead of Penny Morden with Rishi Sunak in third place. But this YouGov poll of the general public shows that while Tory MPs might want Wallace, the country haven't really heard of him. 65% of those surveyed had no opinion of him. Most would prefer Javid or Sunak whose net favourabilities are minus 15 and minus 17, respectively. Compare that to Keir Starmer, who stands at minus 13. Michael, as they say in Love Island, it's early days, but who do you think could emerge the winner here? I mean, it's incredibly difficult to say, and I suppose it probably comes as no surprise. I'm not that tapped in to what Conservative MPs are thinking or saying. So I'm probably going to have to rely on getting this second hand from people who are in the coming days and weeks. Because as I'm sure our, our audience knows, how the leadership election works is that MPs whittle down the candidates to two. So there'll only be two candidates going to the membership, and then the membership decides between those two. So if the membership prefer Ben Wallace and he's not on the final two, then you know it, it's irrelevant how much they like him. Also worth noting that that, that YouGov poll I mean, 13% is, is nothing, right? You've got so many candidates, it, it's very difficult to see which one of those would come out top in any head-to-head -head battle. I actually wouldn't rule out Rishi Sunak, I think. I, I think the fact that he has now played a role in this drama of bringing down Boris Johnson makes him look like less of a sort of damp squib. There was a period where he was looking like someone who actually was completely overhyped, who couldn't really get anything done. Now he has brought down Boris Johnson, obviously, along with Sajid Javid, whose speech I thought in Parliament was incredibly overrated. Everyone was like, this is this is the leadership pitch. This is incredible. Like He constantly got his lines wrong and it was really boring. So I think probably Rishi Sunak won to watch. 
and, you know, potentially Penny Morden. But as I say, w- what's going to be interesting is what these people feel they need to say, one, to win the support from their MPs, and then two, to win the support from the Tory membership. And it's also worth noting, I mean, since 2005, which is when David Cameron won the Tory leadership election, the members have only had a vote once. It was in 2019 when they chose Boris Johnson by a massive majority, of course, in, in 20, 2016 it was, yes. Theresa May was elected without it going to the members because they they narrowed, the MPs narrowed it down to a short list of two, and then Andrea Leadsom dropped out. So it, it, it's quite untested who will come out on top here. But what's going to be interesting is what arguments they feel they need to make to win this. If you're new to Navarra Media, right now we're running a fundraiser and we're looking to expand our base of supporters to 10,000 people. When we started, we had 6,000 and we're in the final 500 to hit our target with 9,500 of you so far backing us. That is Matt I had to do very quickly. So thank you so much for signing up to support us if you have already. And if you haven't, please, 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 please go to navaramedia.com slash support and donate however much you can. Boris Johnson's behavior over the past 72 hours has been really batshit, but there's one minister who's topped him in the shameless stakes, Attorney General Suella Braverman. Here she is talking to Robert Peston on Wednesday night. We've seen extraordinary criticism of the Prime Minister over the last 24 hours. What do you make of his statements or the statements of his officials tonight that he's simply not going to resign? Well, Robert, I've been a a supporter of Boris's for many years and I'm incredibly proud to be serving in his administration and I'm very proud of what he's achieved on Brexit, on COVID, on on Ukraine. And I'm incredibly sad today. There's an overwhelming sense of despair and sadness in Parliament amongst Conservative MPs because, to my mind, um, uh, and it pains me to say this in my heart, but I do think the time has come for the Prime Minister to step down. So that was the Attorney General saying publicly that Boris Johnson should resign. That's, of course, reasonable. However, given Cabinet government comes with what's called collective responsibility, one would assume that that would mean she would be tendering her own resignation. Not so. So if you're saying he has to go, I I presume in all conscience, you feel you can't stay as Attorney General, can you? Well, my first duty is to the country, uh, Robert. And as attorney, I'm the senior law officer. And we're in a crisis. Yeah. um, And I have statutory, legal and constitutional duties. Today, I've been at my desk doing work which is of legal importance and has legal deadlines. Uh, I don't want to resign because I have that duty and we need an attorney in government. But you must you must recognise that there's a very good chance the Prime Minister will now ask you to resign. That is his choice and I will do whatever the Prime Minister asks me to do. Braverman here is clearly a believer in cakeism, that a person can have their cake and eat it. Or it could also be described as being absolutely shameless. In any case, the drama only intensified. A number of your colleagues have actually said that they wondered whether you, as and when the time comes for leadership election, might think about standing. I'll be straight with you, Robert. Yes, I will. If there is a leadership contest, I will put my name into the ring. Uh, I love this country. My parents came here with absolutely nothing. And it was Britain that gave them hope security and opportunity. And this country has afforded me incredible opportunities in education and in my career. Uh, And I owe a debt of gratitude to this country. Uh, And to serve as Prime Minister would be the greatest honour. So yes, I will try. 
I'll be straight with you, Robert. Yes, and I believe it was Winston Churchill who once said, that was clearly rehearsed, wasn't it? Anyway, Suella Braverman became the first person to throw her hat into the ring and launched her own leadership campaign while still serving in the cabinet of the guy she wanted to resign. This is unprecedented stuff. But the next part of the interview was the really scary bit. Here are the policies Braverman thinks could make her prime minister. There's many, many priorities, but I think fundamentally we need to deliver some proper tax cuts so that people can be uh, dealing with the cost of living challenges in a more feasible way. We need to shrink the size of the state and cut government spending so we can curb inflation. We need to solve the problem of the boats across the channel. We need to stop a foreign court interfering in our domestic affairs. We need to make sure the Brexit opportunities are felt for everybody in this country. And lastly, we need to get rid of all of this woke rubbish and actually get back to a country where describing a man and a woman in terms of biology does not mean that you're going to lose your job. Yeesh. So, Michael, how terrified should we be? Are we staring down the barrel of Prime Minister Suella? We'll save what she was saying about policies one moment. I just want to say, like, I just loved how incredibly chaotic that was. Like, I am incredibly (laughs) sad to say, Robert, that I do think it's time he resigns. But I've got a lot of important legal deadlines to meet, so I won't be resigning. And yes, Robert, I am going to stand as leader. Like the the whole thing is just like, I love it. The chaotic energy. So like confident, she's got no idea what's going on. I love it. But I don't really, because she's obviously a terrible, terrible person. And that pitch to to the Conservative Party membership and to Conservative MPs was pretty terrifying. We are in the midst of a cost of living crisis, inflation is at 10%, people's real wages are falling, people are struggling to pay the rent, people are, well, this winter they will be choosing between heating and eating. And Suella Braverman is saying what we need is tax cuts and to be transphobic. And it's like, this is so insane, right? It is so divorced from reality and what people need and, and want. And what scares me is that potentially she is in touch with what Tory MPs and what Tory members want. And if all Tory MPs and Tory members want in the middle of a cost of living crisis is tax cuts and transphobia, like we're really, really screwed. Because and, and I suppose it doesn't surprise me. No Tory MPs and no Tory members are the kind of people who really care that people can't afford their gas bills, that people can't pay their rent, that people are struggling with, you know, real pay cuts of five, ten percent. If people are getting one or two percent pay rises and you've got ten percent inflation, that's a massive pay cut that everyone is suffering from. And that's after twelve years of completely stagnating wages, stagnating life expectancy as well, by the way. So we have a country which is facing immense challenges, right? And the selectorate who are going to choose the next prime minister for potentially, you know, another two years, this woman who seems to be, you know, reasonably in touch with MPs and the membership, even if not with reality, she thinks that how you do that is tax cuts and transphobia. Wow. Like, that is terrifying. Boris Johnson didn't become prime minister all by himself. Had it not been for the Eton to Parliament pipeline, campaign funding from oligarchs and a cushy electoral pact with Nigel Farage, Chances are he'd be crouched over his own lap somewhere in Surrey, trying desperately to autofillate. But there's another section of the elite we have to thank for Prime Minister Boris, and that's the British media. Check out this curiously intimate interview conducted by then BBC political editor Laura Koonsberg from her 2019 documentary, The Brexit Storm. I think you have to understand about Boris Johnson is he really wants to be loved. And actually underneath it all, he's quite shy. But we all know someone like that, right? 
We all know someone who plays the clown because they don't want to be themselves. Given how you were the most prominent face in the Brexit campaign, do you feel responsible for the... Yeah, you bet. You bet. Uh, put it this way, I certainly think that the role I played in the campaign means that I have a, a complete duty to try to argue for, for what I believe in. Someone Turn. said to me, you're like a child who keeps asking for a pony. <laughs> I, never, uh, I never had a pony. I mean, this is during the meanest, darkest days of Theresa May trying to get her Brexit deal through Parliament. And Koonsberg is interviewing the man who just torpedoed May's premiership by... I don't know, the kind of intimacy and low lighting you'd normally reserve for someone you're having an affair with. And if that wasn't bizarre enough, the stuff about Boris Johnson being really quite shy and just wanting to be loved and playing the clown, that is a tone better suited for Esther Perel, not the BBC's political editor. But if maybe you thought that Boris Johnson would get more of a grilling when it was obvious he wanted to become prime minister, you're unfortunately mistaken. Here's Johnson being interviewed by Ross Kempsell, who was at the time political editor of Talk Radio. What do you do to relax? What do you do to switch off? Uh, I, I, well, I like to paint. Um, oh, I make things. I like to... What do you make? I make... I have a thing where I make models of... I mean, when I was in London, well, Mayor of London, we build a beautiful... I make buses you make models of buses i make models of buses so they're going to be do, so so what i do no what i do make models of buses what I'm, i make is i get i get old um i don't know wooden crates yeah right and then i paint them and they uh, and they have two, two suppose it's a white it's a box that's been used to contain two two wine bottles right right and it will have a a, a, a dividing thing yeah. And I turn it into a bus and I, so I, put, I put passengers. You really want to know this? You're making, you the, you're making make, buses. Make, yeah, you're I making paint, cardboard I, buses. I paint, okay, no, that's paint, what you do to enjoy yourself. I paint, no, I paint no. the passengers enjoying themselves okay, great. on the wonderful bus. So this was a totally inane question right at the time that journalists should have been giving Johnson a really hard time. And in fact, it was so banal that commentators at the time speculated that it may have been planted in order to throw off the search engine results you get if you Google Boris Johnson and bus. I wonder why. That's Boris Johnson standing in front of the Brexit bus, which promised 350 million a week for the NHS, which as yet hasn't materialised. Now, I'm not one for conspiracy theory, but just a month after this interview was conducted, Ross Kempsell left his job as a journalist to take up a post as policy advisor to the Prime Minister in the 10 Downing Street Policy Unit. Hmm. So shortly after a softball interview during Johnson's leadership campaign, he gets a plum job working for Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Okay, I hear you say, but what about when there's a meaningful democratic choice for the public to participate in? A fourth estate would never put their thumb on the scales to tip them in favour of Boris Johnson, right? As friend of the show, Juliet Jakes pointed out on Twitter, the BBC broadcast footage of Boris Johnson eating scones the very same day that Corbyn brought up the proposed privatisation of the NHS during the 2019 election campaign. So... 
the very same day that the leader of the opposition produced documents proving that the US was asking that the NHS would be on the table in talks for a post-Brexit trade deal, the country's biggest and most pre prestigious source of news decided to push a cutesy video of Boris Johnson doing a jam and clotted cream and kiki. Michael, the media made Boris Johnson and now they're united in condemning him. Do you reckon they'll exercise a bit more diligence the next time around? No, uh, you probably won't be surprised to hear me say. I mean, I think watching that, and and sort of I was I was thinking about sort of the, the role the media have played in the rise of Boris Johnson, and I think actually what I take away from that is how much the media follow from the government or from political leaders, establishment figures, what they want the political agenda to be, what they want the media discussion to be. So you think about sort of David Cameron, George Osborne, they didn't really stand on their personalities, and you know it's, it's a while ago now, but as far as I can recall. The media wasn't so obsessed with personalities then. But what was it obsessed with? Precisely their talking points. So we constantly had a media talking up the importance of the public debt, why we need austerity. And we had a media talking up the fact that we apparently have all these scroungers who need to have their benefits cut so that they are plunged into misery because they're all lazy. That was what the Tories wanted the public conversation to be. And the media followed suit. Boris Johnson came along. He didn't really have any policies. So there wasn't really anything for the media to lean into. What he wanted to talk about was himself. And so, oh, lo and behold, all of a sudden, the BBC wants to talk about people, wants to talk about Boris Johnson. Does he like jam and clotted cream? And I imagine you know, you'll say, oh, there'll probably be you know, execs in the BBC saying, oh, no, this is, this is modern politics. Modern politics, people want to know about individuals and they want to know what, what they eat and what they do on the weekends. You know, they say this is, this is nothing to do with politics or Boris Johnson, what Boris Johnson wants. This is just the changing times. But actually, they were just following Boris Johnson and what he wanted politics to be about. And for a, for a long time now, Boris, politics has mainly been about personalities, right? And maybe it will be next time around. It could be the case that we get a leader next of the Conservative Party and a prime minister who suddenly has a much more ideological drive than Boris Johnson does. And all of a sudden, we're going to have the BBC not talking about the personality of whoever you know follows Boris Johnson, but suddenly talking about the need to have tax cuts so that businesses don't go abroad. I do think sort of the coverage of Boris Johnson is just an example of how politicians set the agenda, or at least establishment politicians do. If if there's a consensus within Westminster, which Boris Johnson has, you know, he, he likes to pretend he's an outsider, he never really has been an outsider in Westminster, then the media will follow suit. With Boris Johnson, it was personalities, it was sort of completely inane stuff. With David Cameron and George Osborne, actually, the media did some kind of more important ideological work um, when it came to demonizing poor people, essentially. So... Again, I'm not looking forward to see what the media decides to do next, because I think they probably will just lean into whatever the, the next Conservative Prime Minister wants them to lean into. I've got to say, Michael, I disagree with you just a tiny bit in terms of one of the videos, and that is the Laura Koonsberg video, because the lighting and the staging of that is so bizarre. They're sitting practically knee to knee, their hands are almost touching. There is this almost erotic intimacy, which you could not picture in the same year being part of a Jeremy Corbyn interview, or even not Jeremy Corbyn, you know, even someone like Gordon Brown, there is no way that a Labour leader would have gotten that kind of editorialising and that kind of visual language. And so I think that one of the key distinctions, and you touched on this, is the one of us, not one of us distinction, because mm. the culture of lobby journalism is so, so clubby. 
The lobby is literally a club. It is an elevated class of journalists who get an insider status that not everyone else gets. And the thing about Boris Johnson is that he was part of that club. He starts out as a journalist at the Times. He becomes editor of The Spectator. He is enmeshed in this social set. You know, he really is considered one of them. And I think about all those images where you can see Robert Peston or Laura Koonsberg throwing their heads back and laughing as Boris Johnson kind of ho, 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 ho about something. And it just seemed bizarre. It felt like everyone was at a cocktail party and we were invited in to watch. So that for me is, is you know, a, a really important distinction was that Boris Johnson was one of them. And it might be that they consider the next Conservative Party leader one of them as well. And I think the thing about Keir Starmer is as much as people go, oh, you're so forensic, sir, or at least they used to, I don't think you'll ever be one of them in quite the same way. I don't know. What do you think? I take that point. I suppose being one of them, though, isn't isn't definitely necessary. So I don't think you also would, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have seen that kind of interview with David Cameron, I don't think. But that's because David Cameron's project was a much more ideological one than Boris Johnson's. So I don't think you would have had that low lighting and someone talking to David Cameron about XYZ because he was a politician who wanted the media to be discussing all of these scare stories about the deficit and and people on benefits. And they followed suit. Boris Johnson didn't believe anything. So he wanted the media to be talking about him, his personality, and sort of asking questions where he gets to entertain and charm an audience. And I have to say, you know, the bus, the bus painty segment was quite entertaining. You know, I'm I'm not going to lie that he came across quite well in that. But Boris Johnson was running to be prime minister, not running to be, you know, someone on Celebrity Big Brother. Right. So there was a responsibility for journalists to talk about issues that mattered to ordinary people to talk about policies. And they didn't. And Boris Johnson was very, very happy to lead them down those paths where, where all they're trying to get is oh, a fun a- anecdote from Boris Johnson, which can go viral instead of take their job seriously, which is to try and hold this guy who's going to run the country to account. Now, as I say, the alternative to doing this sort of mundane personal commentary is often doing the ideological work of of the government, which in the case of yeah Cameron and Osborne was was much darker than actually what they did when it came to Boris Johnson. So it's going to be difficult to know what happens next. I sometimes wonder what the equivalent of a low-key, horny Navarra media interview would be like. Like, Would it be sitting knee-to-knee with Angela Davis in a dimly lit bar? I don't know. Fund us. Make it happen. With all the relentless Westminster drama, it's easy to forget that the collapse of Johnson's government and the vacuum that it leaves behind will have a very real effect on ordinary people. Money-saving expert Martin Lewis has appeared on Newsnight where he issued this stark reminder. Let's be plain, it is going to be a very, very bleak winter. You're talking with some of the debt charities, 35% of people who go in after they've had their debt counselling are still running a negative deficit budget, so they can't afford to pay even when everything's been cut by the experts from them. And we are getting close, I have said this before, to a position of civil disobedience in this country, civil unrest, not riots. I mean, civil disobedience, you mean in terms of people refusing to pay their bills? We've had it in Ireland where people refuse to pay their mortgages in the past. I don't think we are far away from that position. The the government was too late on the cost of living crisis with its previous uh, interventions. The one that came from the Chancellor recently wasn't too bad. But I, I just give a warning now. 
you, you cannot spend too long on this. We have a genuine catastrophic crisis hitting 10 million people potentially moving into a severe levels of poverty. We haven't got enough time to deal with this. We need to get this dealt with and get it sorted before winter comes. That was pretty powerful and impassioned stuff. Now, Lewis has admitted that he made a mistake there. To clarify, people in Ireland didn't refuse to pay their mortgages. There were mass mortgage defaults during the financial crisis, but no movement of deliberate non-payment. However, in 2014, there was widespread refusal to pay a newly introduced charge for water in Ireland, which led to the charge being repealed. And still, his point stands, increasing numbers of people are in an increasingly desperate situation. Johnson's government did the bare minimum to help them. And now that there's no effective government, it looks like it's only going to get worse. So, Michael, do you think that Martin Lewis is right? Do you think we could be looking at civil disobedience ahead? Well, I mean, in terms of civil disobedience, it is quite interesting that we're about to have a summer of strikes. We've already seen some and we've seen that, you know, for example, the RMT and Mick Lynch really captured the imagination of the, of the public. So these are strikes which are both committed. These are people who, you know, quite rightly are not willing to refuse real-term pay cuts. And you've got a public who are quite sympathetic to that because most people are experiencing a situation where we're being told both by bosses, but also by Labour and the Tories that we've got to accept real-term pay cuts, right? So there is no leadership coming from Westminster and there's going to be even less because there's going to be a lame duck prime minister for the next two months. So if you've got no leadership coming from Westminster, you've got Tory MPs who are basically for the next two months purely going to be speaking to other MPs and their base you know, they're not going to be talking about the cost of living crisis because that doesn't interest MPs and it doesn't interest their members. So I do think you are going to have a real vacuum of sort of, you know, leading public opinion when it comes to Westminster. And that will put that leadership role in the hand of in the hands of trade unions. You know, it could put it in the hands of the Labour Party, but they're obviously not going to bother doing that. Right. So I, I do think that this is a very ripe time for, for civil disobedience and, you know, especially strike action. I do think, though, it is so refreshing to see Martin Lewis on television make these kind of points, because obviously, you know, Newsnight, you just got constant political commentator, talk to political commentator. What does this guy in Westminster think? What does this guy in Westminster think? Who's thinking what, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Martin Lewis is not someone who I think is particularly ideologically inclined, but he has spent his lifetime not talking to various people in Westminster, but talking to people who are struggling to pay their bills. And so that does put him way more in touch with what is going on in this country than the people he was sitting next to. And I think it's telling that he speaks with so much more passion and so much more conviction than the rest of them. Obviously, you know, we only showed you him in that clip, but the rest of them did not, you could imagine, speak with the conviction that he did. And I do think that it would be so much more useful if our news media spoke less to lobby journalists who walk around Westminster and are now all patting themselves on the back because, oh, we brought down a prime minister because there was a splash in the sun about, you know, Chris Pincher allegedly pinching someone, right? And they're like, oh, this is holding power to account. That's not holding power to account. You know, that's playing some role in the replacement of one guy by another guy who are going to be relatively insulated from the struggles that, that people are going through right now. Because all anyone wants to talk about is Boris Johnson versus Priti Patel versus Sajid Javid versus Michael Gove. You know, this stuff is, I find it entertaining. And I think we often try and cover this in a way where you sort of are sort of allowed to look at some of it in sort of the lighthearted way that I think it should be taken. I love watching these terrible people fight like rats in a sack. But we also do always need to remember that what matters here 
is the experiences of people out in the world, which right now are pretty fucking terrible, right? And that is something that Martin Lewis, because he actually speaks to them, not like the people he's sitting next to, is very, very able to bring to the fore. And I do think that if there were more people like Martin Lewis who were given those platforms on on television, then potentially we wouldn't have people like Suella Braverman who thinks it is acceptable to come out and launch a leadership campaign by saying what we're going to do is cut tax and be mean to transgender people, right? Because I think you would have a situation where Tory MPs were like, well, if that's all we're going to talk about, of course we can't win because everyone wants us to talk about these issues that matter. Well, actually, they've got the BBC working, you know, on their behalf most of the time, which means that maybe... You know, Swella Braverman can come out with tax cuts and transphobia and, and and the Tories will get away with it. I don't know. But they wouldn't if there were more people speaking with that passion and people who spoke to ordinary people all the time instead of people who just hang out near the House of Commons. One of the things that I was thinking when I was watching Martin Lewis is that it's really important to have leaders, of course, and people who are able to make media interventions in a way that reflects the experiences of people in the country. But I'm always really wary of thinking about politics are some kind of spectator sport where you cheer for a team and you want them to do well, but it's got nothing to do with you. And that's what I think the really critical point about civil disobedience and of course trade union mobilization is truly about, which is that politics isn't a spectator sport. The fact is, is that people in this country have been systematically disempowered. Their ability to collectively organize to participate in trade unions or to take extra parliamentary forms of action has over decades been, you know, really quite corroded. But as we get further into this cost of living crisis, which it looks like is only going to get worse, and you have a failure of leadership from a Labour Party, which is very interested in courting those same lobby journalists that you just spoke about, Michael, I think that it's the job of left media, but also just you know, activists out there in the field to remind people that there is some kind of agency that we have, and that is the agency of collective action. Michael, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And Ash, you have been exceptional. You know, I'm glad that people realize that reading an autocue isn't that easy, but you (laughs) bring them to this that I am very jealous of. Tomorrow night, I will be back in the Navarra hot seat from 7pm. So do come back to this channel at that time. Make me feel better. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.